Petroleum prices have risen sharply over the past few months, driving up the price of practically anything else you can think of, and once again raising the issue of Caribbean reliance on imported fossil fuel. Caribbean SIDS depend almost entirely on imported fuel to power homes and businesses and to transport goods and people. As a result, our economic health hangs in the balance of petroleum price fluctuations. The region's quest to lower carbon emissions is never-ending, but events such as the current fuel crisis tend to highlight the urgency of our need for energy security, placing a bit of extra force on the push towards cleaner energy and transportation. In the past, this additional drive might have faded once the fuel market started to stabilize, but things are perhaps more likely to keep pushing right along this time. Persistent public engagement over the years has greatly increased awareness of issues such as climate change, and ongoing research and investment have yielded massive improvements in technologies such as solar PV and electric vehicles, improving efficiency and accessibility in the process. We at CESA wanted to explore these developments further, so we did what we always do. We got in touch with the experts. First, we spoke to David Barrett, Principal Consultant at Enbar Consulting, who showed us how renewables are already integrating themselves into Caribbean economies. You have the government itself procuring renewable systems and, uh, and, and establishing bid processes for, for, for procurement. Then we got in touch with Xavier Gordon, CEO of Flash Motors, who helped us take a closer look at electric vehicles and the regional market forming around them. I think a very important part that's, that we would like to continue working on, and you know we do have a product for, but obviously we need to work with agencies on that, is, is public transportation. Finally, we sat down with Curtis Boudou, Assistant Professor in the Utilities and Sustainable Engineering Unit at the University of Trinidad and Tobago. He highlighted some of the important regional implications of electrifying Caribbean transportation and broadened our scope on the potential for electric mobility to benefit Caribbean cities. Perhaps we could investigate the use of an electric ferry for inter-island transport among our multi-island states. So let's talk about energy security. As we examine Caribbean adoption of renewable energy and clean transportation in this episode of Caesar Voices. volatility of the fuel market is on full display right now, emphasizing the clear energy security benefits of renewables. Gas prices will again hit a new re record high this week. Some of us might imagine this as a temporary window of opportunity to be seized upon by solar companies and other actors within the renewable sector. But renewable energy consultant David Barrett knows the sector is far beyond the point of relying on such things. So unfortunately, the Caribbean islands have had an unfortunate habit of getting very excited about renewables and putting a lot of energy and enthusiasm into it. When there is a crisis, you know, when the oil crisis was with us in the 70s and challenges in the 80s, and of course now, the prices, you know, shot up over $100 per barrel. And so there's a lot of excitement. I think this time around, though, that we are having a ratcheting effect. 
if I can use that terminology. In other words, having come to this point where we have pushed more renewables, it's unlikely that the rate of acceleration will slow down. David's been involved in numerous renewable development projects and has collaborated with stakeholders from different parts of the region. His work has shown him that there are multiple factors already driving the transition process. There's now a lot of infrastructure investments, one, and a lot of these investments won't roll back. They're locked into tariff, they're locked into the grid um, TND. Two, the cry for lower electricity prices is right across the region. But what I've seen is that there is less of an emphasis on finding fossil options and more of a preference to finding renewable options, indigenous options, to lower that cost. Then there is a lot of support from the international uh, multilateral um, agencies supporting the development of renewables and supporting the acceleration of the penetration of renewables. So I think at least those three things are going to cause us to ratchet upward the inclusion of renewables rather than pulling back once those prices start to fall. And of course, the oil prices have fallen since, you know, $140 per barrel. They're coming back down. But I don't think that's going to affect the region in terms of its interest in renewable development, particularly electricity. A region powered primarily by renewables isn't a matter of speculation anymore. The Caribbean is pretty much on a set course at this point, which amounts to a much safer bet for investors. Renewables investments have now become even more secure. Again, they're locked into the tariffs, the TND, so there's a, an ability to now do a long-term plan for your investment. For smaller systems, you have net billing and net metering. Uh, net metering being a sort of one-to-one cost for selling your electricity as you buy. Net billing is some portion of what the utility would have spent for power generation. Usually it's tied to short-run costs associated with fuel. Here it is again, you can sort of plan around your investment returns. And uh, residentials are finding that they can pay off the, the, the debt or the cost of the investment Within four years, the utilities are finding that they can pay off that expense, you know, within eight to 10 years. So planning is now locked in. You, it's not a matter of not knowing when you'll get the returns on your investment. The stakes have lowered significantly, especially in the case of solar PV. What we're finding is that the prices for equipment is trending down. So, for example, the framework. The prices are coming down because they're now making them in modular fashions where it's a sort of click, screw, and install, as opposed to sort of drilling and welding things to, to put up your, your frames. The solar panels, uh, properly called uh, modules, are coming down in costs. A large amount of manufacturing is done, so volume is important, materials is important, things which were front edge science, you know, research kind of materials are now commonplace. Solar PV has become particularly accessible over the years, right down to the availability of safe, affordable financing. Let's not forget our commercial institutions. They are now offering solar loans, solar PV loans, you know, left, right and center. 
and a number of government institutions. So, for example, in Jamaica, we have the Development Bank of Jamaica, which is offering special interest rates, which go to primarily your, your approved financial institutions to lower those rates. So again, here's some security on that. And of course, let's not leave out our development partners. I know, for example, in Jamaica, you have USCID, which provided a loan a guarantee. So they didn't actually provide a loan itself, but what they did was to guarantee that if there was a default on the renewable energy loan, there was some risk management for the financial institutions. Renewables are steadily approaching mainstream status, with a rapidly expanding sales and service industry responding to their ever-increasing demand. And measures are being put in place to widen access to the many opportunities being generated in the process. There are a number of training programs so that a company no longer is sort of flying by the seat of its pants or trying to install these systems purely on um, an engineering basis, as in you have to be a mechanical or electrical engineer only to be involved in the industry. You have training programs like the Certified Energy Managers Program. You have the North American-based Energy Professional, the NABSEP Inspector Certification Program. It also has an installation program. You have um, the Florida uh, Solar Institute training and, and many, many others. In Jamaica, we have HART that has a solar program that trains persons to physically install systems. State support has played a major role in the sector's growth, although it certainly took some time and dialogue for governments in the region to get involved. In fairness, though, this wasn't necessarily a matter of Caribbean leaders failing to see the benefits offered by renewables. So for many of the Caribbean islands, while we try to work through our international loans or IMF loans and others, the governments tended to be a little hesitant to do things like incentives, um, fiscal support, impacting duties and so on. But now many of them have cleared their, their loans. Right. So the states are now beginning to open up to giving incentives, which signals its confidence in the renewable energy sector. And then, of course, I mentioned state institutions like the DBJ, which you know gives special loans based on where they receive their finances from. And you have the government itself procuring renewable systems and, uh, and, and establishing bid processes for, for, for procurement. Having already been forced to grapple with the harsh impacts of climate change and the burdens of high fuel costs, often in combination, Caribbean governments aren't exactly opposed to the idea of clean renewable energy. Right now in Jamaica, there's a, a study that's uh, to be initiated, I believe, looking at the full breadth of solar PV that can be installed on you know, every single roof in Jamaica. And I know that there are other studies like that throughout the region. So the government has sent a clear, clear signal in policy, a clear signal in its um, financial interventions, fiscal or financial. And of course, let us, you know, take our hats off to our international development partners, which have come on board to give support to the region. Keep in mind, by the way, that all this support isn't limited to solar PV. There's a lot of interest in hydro. Uh, Guyana has a significant hydro potential. Also, of course, wind. Wind is a big one. You have Wigton Wind Farm, um, 67 megawatts. You have 
Blue Mountain Renewables, and uh, you have other interests within the region for adding wind. Uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, you know, Barbados has a, a big plan for, for wind. If you want to look a little bit on the edge, you have islands like Barbados that have significant opportunities for wave energy. And there might be some islands with current. Let's not forget also geothermal. Geothermal is very big. I really should mention biomass, specifically waste to energy. Waste to energy is a significant opportunity, especially for smaller islands which have land constraints. We're making great strides as it relates to renewable development. But these untapped sources serve as a reminder that there's always room for additional growth. For us to really maximize our renewable energy potentials, we have to ensure that we have sufficient trained professionals within our region. Let's increase the capacity. And we can do that from the various trainings. I mentioned NABCEP, I mentioned um, the CEM program. I know that Barbados and others have training programs. Two, I think that there's a significant um, potential for electric vehicles, and we have to tie those electric vehicles at some point to clean energy. Otherwise, you have only really achieved a part of what you want to achieve with EVs. Then I think policy is, of course, going to be important because that points the direction for the investors and for your development partners and for the country to strive towards something. So I'd say policy is something else that also needs to change. And speaking of things that need to change. There has to be a way to begin to wean ourselves off our fossil fuel infrastructure. A lot of financial investment has been made in, in fossil fuel um, turbines and so on, power systems. But we have to be determined to schedule the retirement of these systems. And it may be easier for countries where the utility is not owned by the government. When the government is the owner of the utility, it, it presents a little bit more of a molasses effect. It's a slower transition, you know, away from these expensive infrastructure, which consume a lot of fossil fuel. As an active participant in the transition process, David knows there's still a lot of work yet to be done. But he's not at all concerned about our capacity to reach our energy goals based on what he sees around him. The normal man on the street is more environmentally sensitive than maybe two decades ago or even a decade ago. You know, where we're talking climate change as, as a part of regular conversation. This is not you know, consultants within the government sector talking about climate change. This is the man on the street. It's the farmer who can't get his, you know, the rain that he wants when he wants. This is the, the, the students who are complaining that it's too hot during the summer. You know, it's, it's a very common conversation. And then tied to that now is the conversation that says, hey, so how can we play our part in reducing the effects of climate change? And uh, Here's mitigation with, you know, solar PV or wind or hydro or any of those other technologies. So we have a much more savvy population within the region on those things. We are getting so much more exposed to the technologies because we're seeing them more. We're having these, you know, school trips to wind farms and to solar farms and people are just um, following the buzz. It's an exciting time when our people have become more savvy 
when our people are beginning to demand of our governments to make that shift towards cleaner, greener, indigenous sources. So we're in a good place. I was born to be free. Renewable energy holds the power to significantly loosen the shackles of the oil and gas industry. But it can't set our economies free on its own. In order to slide out of our fossil fuel restraints, the Caribbean must address the issue of transportation, which accounts for 30 to 60% of the energy used by CARICOM states. This presents lucrative opportunities for entrepreneurs like Xavier Gordon. After establishing a successful solar company in Ontario, Canada, and spreading into the province's emerging electric vehicle sector, Xavier and his business partners started looking into the foreign market, eventually setting their sights on Jamaica. In 2018, we uh, worked with JPS to evaluate their internal um, fleet of vehicles. You know, being a utility, they have a fleet of vehicles that they use to service and, 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 and reach out into the communities that they service. Um, so we looked at that fleet and we helped them evaluate where the opportunities to electrify would be. And in doing so, we we're able to really understand where the, the benefits of electric mobility would be. And we quantified that. It was actually the first empirical study of, of electric vehicles in the Caribbean. We pulled actual data um, and we put data loggers on the, the, the fleets of vehicles in, in JPS. And we were able to really understand that EVs would save on maintenance costs and energy. In looking at that, um, we understood that there was a very good opportunity from a business perspective to, for EVs to take off. Xavier and his team went on to work with utilities, government agencies, and development banks in different parts of the region, gaining an understanding of the various local markets in the process. The conclusion we came to was that there was a need for supply of EVs and a need for expertise around charging infrastructure. And so that gave birth to our, our, our new company, which is the Flash Motors Company, which we launched earlier this year in Jamaica. It's a regional company. Um, so Jamaica is one of our first markets, but it's not our only market. We also um, do work in Trinidad and Tobago, St. Lucia, um, Bahamas, Bermuda, um, Belize, and Guyana as well. So taking all the experience over the years that we've done here, both in Canada as well across the region, we, we looked and identified where the opportunity would be and where the gap is in the market. There really isn't a, a, an assured expertise um, behind electric vehicles and electric mobility. Um, on the supply side and, uh, and on the infrastructure side. So that's the gap that we fill, and that's the gap that we think is going to be important to really unlock in the market. Electric mobility could save the region billions of dollars each year on fuel imports alone, while significantly lowering carbon emissions, even though these benefits do come at a high initial cost, for now. Currently, you know, you're looking at anywhere between a 10 to 15% premium on the purchase price of the vehicles. Um, but that's coming down quite a bit from as high as 50 percent, you know, as, as little as two to three years ago. What we're faced with essentially is a declining gap between the capital costs between electric vehicles. And that just has to do with economies of scale. You know, tens of millions of internal combustion engine vehicles are built every year. Um, EVs are, you know, cracking past two million now. And so the supply chain is starting to get there. So. The globally accepted standard for price equality is 2025. In some markets and some sectors, price equality has already been reached. Um, for instance, in China, um, a diesel bus and an electric bus cost, cost exactly the same. Um, so it, it's simply, you know, just like we saw with solar, um, where, you know, 10 years ago, solar energy was extremely expensive. It was the most 
um, expensive form of energy, you know, fast forward to 2022 and solar energy and wind are cheaper than coal and gas. EVs may very well cost less than ice vehicles someday, but the energy efficiency factor alone makes them quite competitive in today's market. Energy costs are, are significantly less. Um, it obviously does depend on the energy costs in each individual market, but um, because an electric motor is you know, 90 to 95% efficient versus um, an internal combustion engine, which is somewhere between 15 to 25% efficient, um, you're always going to be more energy efficient in running an electric vehicle than you would an internal combustion engine vehicle. Now, if we look at, let's say, different markets here in Canada where electricity is relatively cheap, the difference between fueling up a gasoline or diesel car and charging an electric car is about you know, eight to 10 times uh, more efficient uh, or more affordable, I should say, uh, for an EV. In a place like Jamaica, where fuel costs are relatively high, but electricity is extremely high, that ratio, instead of being 10 to one, is more, more around a four to one ratio. Um, but still, four to one is, is, is an excellent ratio when it comes to fueling. The energy efficiency benefits are fairly obvious. But one important benefit of EVs that's often overlooked is their low maintenance cost. Less components, less moving parts, no transmission, no um, emission system to deal with, no um, you know, oil or, or belts or time belts, etc. You remove a lot of components that add a lot of um, wear and tear and require a lot of maintenance from the vehicle. Um, you know, you're essentially left with an electric motor and an inverter and a battery system. The battery system is not really designed for any sort of maintenance. There's no maintenance to be done to the battery. Um, an electric motor is, you know, one of the modern marvels of engineering. Electric motors will typically outlast the vehicle body itself. Um, they don't need any sort of, you know, work like an internal combustion engine vehicle may need after, you know, a few hundred thousand kilometers. Um, and, you know, it's a one-speed transmission system, um, so you don't have as many gears and, 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 and belts to deal with. Of course, some maintenance and repair will be required from time to time, but that's a fairly straightforward affair, assuming you purchase your vehicle from a licensed dealer such as Flash Motors, with trained technicians and manufacturer support. But we know that's not always the case here in the Caribbean. My concern is that as people get excited about EVs, and rightfully so, um, they may start just you know, reaching out into the foreign markets and bringing in unsupported vehicles, which which won't necessarily have the parts or the necessary training uh, for people to be able to service and work on them. So I think it's going to be really important that the government continues to invest and the government has been working with the Inter-American Development Bank and providing generic training um, for, for, for stakeholders, for, I know, the JAGAS, um, you know, which is the leading automotive school in Jamaica. You know, they've undertaken um, training programs. I believe they're doing some work later on this month in the month of May through an Inter-American Development Bank project. Um, and then it's going to be, you know, continue investment by the Ministry of Education and, and through any of the other government agencies to ensure that third party shops um, and third party servicemen are able to acquire those skills to be able to, to, to work with those gray market vehicles and any other sort of used vehicles that come into the marketplace. So, you know, it, it's two, 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 two prongs to it. I think the established dealers um, will work with their manufacturers to ensure that they have parts and training on it. Um, and, you know, like I said, there are programs that are happening right now um, through the IDB, um, through the Caribbean Development Bank as well, too, through the JPS Foundation as well, to ensure that those third party and used car service providers are able to catch up on the training as well. 
On the topic of training, there's also the issue of emergency services. EVs actually tend to have higher safety ratings than ICE vehicles, but accidents do happen. Are emergency responders prepared? What we do, you know, with, with, with our flash motors vehicles is as these vehicles get deployed, you know, we do provide sort of training notes out to emergency responders so that they can understand where those disconnects are for high voltage vehicles. Um, for our high voltage vehicles, there are also training programs that are going on with the Caribbean Development Bank and Inter-American Development Bank to provide generic training. I've also seen other private dealers look at doing that as well, too. So the, the necessary stakeholders from a public safety point of view are being kept informed and are being sort of brought along with the process. Um, obviously, we're still early stages. I don't believe there's a generic um, blanketed process for everybody. But I think all the, the stakeholders and all the actors in the market are ensuring that as they bring their product into the market, that they're providing those um, responders with information to be able to, to do the disconnect of the system. And it's typically, you know, a place in the car where you simply pull a switch and that disconnects the high voltage line, which then allows them to, you know, I give access to the vehicle if they need to do any sort of uh, crimping or tearing um, in order to access anything in the vehicle. Another concern involves the availability of public charging, but this is already being addressed in emerging markets such as Jamaica. The private and the, the utility sector have been very responsive and have ensured that the necessary investments are being made so that no matter where you go in Jamaica, even if you do have your own private charging station at home or at work, you can rest assured to know that you will still have access elsewhere. And it's an important thing for the psyche, um, internal combustion engine vehicle, Drivers, you know, you're used to seeing gas stations everywhere, so you feel confident knowing you can drive anywhere. Um, and that sort of um, confidence is needed to, to encourage adoption. So it's infrastructure, it's important infrastructure, but it's also marketing. It's also a matter of accessibility. Not everybody will have access to private charging at home. If you're a renter or you're leasing or you're in an older condominium or apartment that may not necessarily have space for infrastructure for a private charging station or even a shared private charging station. Um, you know, maybe your workplace doesn't have the ability to put in charging station. Not everybody will be able to put in their own charger um, based on the nature of how they live. Um, and so therefore public charging will be the only way for them to do that. So having access to public charging is a necessary good. It's a public good. Um, and in addition, you know, you still want to have flexibility to be able to top up. Xavier and his partners are focused on the full spectrum of offerings, from commercial vehicles for businesses to retail products aimed at individuals and families. But their ultimate goal is to extend the benefits of electrification to everyone. I think a very important part that's, that we would like to continue working on, and you know, we do have the product for, but obviously we need to work with agencies on that, is, is public transportation. Um, that's where you are able to impact people the most. Um, you know, Buses, uh, shuttles, minivans, uh, coaster vans, um, all of those are really big opportunities that, you know, we're very eager to tap into because that's where everybody gets to benefit from electric mobility. We don't want electric mobility to be um, gate kept um, just for, you know, businesses or persons who are able to afford private transportation uh, because that's in the minority. Um, in pretty much most markets we're in. The, the majority of persons that, you know, in, in Jamaica use public transportation one way or another, whether it's a taxi or a bus. And we want to be able to unlock the benefits of that for them as well. Um, and so, you know, we're eager to continue to work with government agencies, um, public transit, uh, private taxi companies, tourism-based companies, 
to ensure that they can figure out the best way to unlock electric mobility. Um, and I think that's where our true metric of success is going to be. Many great minds in the region are focused on these kinds of issues. There's a lot of work being done by researchers such as Curtis Boudou, who understand the need to maximize e-mobility's impact within the Caribbean, firstly by addressing barriers of access. For instance, EVs with their high energy efficiency and low maintenance costs could significantly boost economies in the region by drastically reducing operating expenditure for businesses. But for this to happen, the majority of these businesses need to actually be able to make use of EVs, which brings us back to one particular issue. So if you're looking at all classes of electric vehicles, passenger cars, uh, fleet electric vehicles, scooters for delivery, they cost more or they have that higher upfront cost compared to their internal combustion engine counterpart or their ICE technology counterpart. And that initial hurdle is very difficult to overcome by businesses, and especially small businesses, with uh, limited access to financing. And this is something that the region and, and, and governments within the region needs to look at. If we are to support entrepreneurship, if we are to support small businesses, if we are to support our service sector. According to the Caribbean Development Bank, 70 to 85% of Caribbean businesses are micro, small and medium-sized enterprises which contribute between 60 and 70% of gross domestic product and account for roughly 50% of total employment in the region. Many of these businesses offer services that are crucial to driving economic activity, and yet they're often the ones cut off from technologies that could boost their effectiveness in that regard. Governments in the region have addressed this situation. Uh, Barbados would have reduced the taxation on electric vehicles further, they have not zero-rated it, but they would have reduced it. Trinidad would have zero-rated taxes and duties on electric vehicles in January of this year. Guyana has zero-rating on, on electric vehicles for quite some time now. Antigua and Barbuda has zero-rating on EVs. Montserrat has an excellent policy on electric vehicles. So member states within CARICOM have already recognized the importance of EVs. Of course, governments in the region are already dealing with economic challenges, even without considering those brought on by the pandemic. It's something that would have to be looked at most definitely individually uh, amongst member states. And it is something that they would have to look at and take into consideration the climate change commitments, uh, whatever economic growth that could come out of electric vehicles, they have to look at uh, maintaining a national budget. Because we would see throughout the region, uh, member states are rolling out or spending more on, on social programs to support um, the, the, the difficult times under the pandemic and, then, and, and even the low economic activity coming out of the pandemic. So quite a, num a lot of public funds are going towards social programs. Uh, so if you're redirecting funds towards social programs to support the pandemic, it's very a difficult balancing act now to reduce your revenue from taxation of vehicles when you are already committing otherwise to, 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 to help the pandemic. So it's, it's a very difficult balancing act. What about the commercial banks? Is there a role for them here as well, where, you know, through financing solutions? To help with the adoption of EVs, at, at least at the passenger sedan sector, uh, commercial banks should look at 
restructuring their requirements as it relates to, to vehicle loans. And what do I mean by that? I, I mean that an electric vehicle does cost more than a comparative ICE vehicle. And um, when you visit the bank and you want to seek financing, the bank will make a determination on your income and your responsibilities and come up with a, a, a sum that would be of a low risk for them to, to lend you. But if electric vehicles are more expensive than ICE vehicles, then quite a number of persons may not qualify for a sum that will allow you to own an electric vehicle. But I believe commercial banks should consider that the overall cost of ownership of an electric vehicle is less than an ICE vehicle. You would pay less for fuel, you would pay less for maintenance. That overall cost that they would have to give up from their budget monthly would be less. So this is something that, that perhaps the commercial banks should look at. The combination of accessible financing options and government incentives could certainly do a lot to drive up overall adoption rates. But only amongst those able to afford vehicles in the first place, who, as our previous guest pointed out, make up the minority of Caribbean markets. This is why Curtis also believes we should move quickly to electrify public transportation. Our commuting public throughout the region stand and wait for transportation twice a day, early morning and perhaps after four when they leave. The particulate emissions that you would find on the side of the road, that exposure daily, is very high because we, we live in a very dense urban setting. We work in a very dense urban setting. So to benefit the commuting public, to benefit the working class, to benefit children getting to school, we have to, in our first rollout of electric vehicles, in my opinion, focus on public transportation and fleets. You focus on fleets for businesses, so you support businesses, and, and of course, they would support that local economic activity. And by you focusing on public transportation, you get to reach the more vulnerable in society. In Curtis's view, this needs to be part of an overall effort to streamline public transportation systems in the region. If you have a, a quick read of the publicly available Auditor General reports on the uh, state-owned public transportation institutions in your region, you would be surprised at the inefficiencies. Uh, this is not singling out a single member state. This is quite a number of member states do have uh, long-standing issues with state-owned or partially state-owned public transportation. And because our public transportation is inefficient, we have more cars than we need to go to work and leave because we are not confident in our public transportation. We are not confident of the, the reliability and security. So we find other inefficient means, which involves the more use of cars in our urban setting. And you could pick any national from any CARICOM country, and they will complain to you about the traffic in their capital city or whatever uh, uh, urban center they have to visit for goods and services. So we move towards electrifying public transportation in addition to focusing resources towards improving the reliability and safety of our public transportation. Electrifying public transportation might be an effective way for governments to cut down on spending while also taking the lead on e-mobility. And this could extend to other areas of the public sector. So the maintenance cost for public sector vehicles is, is high. Of course, again, the fuel costs will be even higher, especially now. So it really does lend itself to electrification in the public sector. And um, it helps towards the overall deployment of electric vehicles. 
once the state takes this initial risk in what is by some maybe deemed a new technology, then that uh, exposure to the technology will filter down to the everyday citizen and, and, and whatever doubts they have about the technology would, would hopefully subside. So I think that we should also look at our largest public sector fleet users, of course, public transportation and buses being uh, uh, number one. Of course, this isn't the only way for Caribbean governments to chart the way forward. There needs to be a focus towards the development of transportation policies in the region. Member states need to develop uh, transportation policies, and I think we have moved beyond transportation policies and we should develop sustainable transportation policies. At the regional level, at the CARICOM level, there should be a regional sustainable transportation policy, just like we have um, at the CARICOM level, a sustainable energy policy and an energy policy within CARICOM uh, that does have um, targets for, for renewable energy deployment. So we need that similar uh, policy framework at both the regional and national levels for member states to address transportation. Policies that are clear, data-driven, and properly targeted can make all the difference when tackling issues like the ones we've discussed in this episode so far. Here's a good example. Guyana has a very interesting electric vehicle taxation policy in that if you import a new electric vehicle, you incur taxes. But if you import a used electric vehicle, you do not incur taxes. Now, this policy directly addresses the inequality as it relates to electric vehicles, because what you're doing is that you are providing the tax exemptions for persons who could only afford a used vehicle or a used electric vehicle in this case. But what that means in Guyana is that there's quite a number of used vehicles, there's quite a number of batteries that are coming into the country that uh, are used. So there is a great opportunity to take these batteries when, when they have capacity that is not really feasible to use for transport and use them for renewable energy. There are quite a number of communities in Guyana that are without a great connection, mainly because of the vast size of the country. So the use of solar and batteries is a focus currently of the government in Guyana and of many past governments and will be a focus in the future. So you have this opportunity to keep the life of this battery for this, from this electric vehicle that you brought in into the country to reduce emissions in transportation sector to now at the end of its life continue to reduce emissions in the power or the electricity sector. This is exactly the kind of broad-minded approach needed to figure out how to get the most out of electric mobility, especially within the context of the diverse island geographies found here in the Caribbean region. We in CARICOM, uh, quite a number of member states in CARICOM, uh, are blessed to be uh, multi-island states. Of course, we have the main island where most of uh, the inhabitants live, with most of the economic activity, with most of the services and products. Uh, but you, of course, you have the smaller islands, persons live there, there are economic activities, tourism. And the distance between the main island and these smaller satellite islands, if you if you, if you allow me to call it that, can be relatively small. And there are electric boats that are in the market today that can satisfy the range of travel between certain multi-island states. And of course, now you begin to clean up emissions in the maritime sector. So electric boats can be looked at as it relates to tourism and as it relates to our 
existing economic activities among along our rivers, and perhaps we could investigate the use of an electric ferry for inter-island transport among our multi-island states. Given the right approach, even technologies less suited to solving today's problems might become solutions tomorrow. There has been a lot of talk regarding hydrogen and transportation globally. Using hydrogen for transportation within the CARICOM perspective, I, I don't see as, as being feasible um, in the medium and long term. I believe electric vehicles are the solution. And there are many technical reasons for that. If you look at the entire value chain in terms of energy losses from the, the, the production of renewable energy all the way to the use of that energy in an electric vehicle, uh, you save energy compared to the equivalent hydrogen production that would lead to power in a vehicle. But hydrogen can be used for transport in the region. And I want to bring back this old technology to the region of zeppelins or airships. Now, for some of our listeners, the word zeppelin might conjure up images of the well-known Hindenburg accident in 1937. But the zeppelin company actually had a spotless safety record spanning 27 years prior to that event. Airships were widely considered to be the most reliable mode of overseas transport at the time, and the Hindenburg itself made 62 successful flights across the Atlantic before its untimely demise, often carrying other aircraft. Of course, the Hindenburg did pass through South America, Trinidad, and CARICOM countries in the past, so the region is, no, is, is not strange to have uh, airships, or in this case, a Zeppelin. But with the predominance of hydrogen, and advancement in technologies and material sciences, I could see hydrogen airships returning to the region. And let me tell you what, a flight from a CARICOM country to another CARICOM country may take an hour, all right? If, unless it's Trinidad to Jamaica, it'll take more. But other member states, it's typically an hour. If you use a hydrogen airship or a Zeppelin, that time will increase to perhaps one and a half, two hours, which is still manageable. It isn't too long. But what airships bring is the ability to bring more cargo and heavier cargo and transport heavier cargo. And this could potentially decrease the cost for shipping goods within CARICOM member states. And it will be faster than ships. But of course, it will be slower than an airplane. What it also does, it reduces emissions in air transport drastically. And it allows the transportation of valuable goods post-disaster. So within the CARICOM context and the interconnection of the islands, we could look at Zeppelin's airships that are hydrogen-powered being used regularly to move goods and perhaps people. As we're being forcefully reminded right now, energy insecurity is a major concern for Caribbean countries, which must already contend with environmental hazards and economic constraints. Transitioning towards more sustainable energy sources and transportation methods can help solve all these problems. And we're starting to make serious progress thanks to the hard work of regional stakeholders and the support of governments, commercial institutions and multilateral agencies. We've actually come quite a long way. and We can take things even further by developing effective policies aimed at smoothing the transition process and impacting as many people as possible. Anyway... That's all we have for you on this episode of Caesar Voices. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to share their insights with us. We'd also like to thank our funded partner, the Barbados Environment Conservation Trust, for making this episode possible. 
The Trust aims to help Barbados reach its national development goals by supporting local initiatives aimed at environmental sustainability. Of course, we'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you've been hearing so far, please feel free to give us a rating wherever you're listening. We'd also like to remind you that you can visit our website, caesarjournal.org donations to lend your financial support. Or join our monthly donor club on Patreon and gain access to exclusive content. Or even be featured in an episode of our podcast. Just click the links in the description. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of Caesar Voices and feature your company or NGO, please click on our corporate link to learn more. 